you know, this is a really scary time that we are all living through right now. And even before the pandemic started, there were these kind of nonstop disasters that were straining the system, affecting millions of people across the country. And I think that for one of the first times, many folks across the country started to really see what the climate crisis means and that, it, you know, it's not just this future reality. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. This year, we've seen the devastation of climate impacts across the country coming against the backdrop of a global pandemic that has taken hundreds of thousands of American lives. It's been one disaster after another, from unprecedented wildfires ravaging the West to an exceedingly above-average hurricane season in the East and South Coasts. We're living with the realities of a warmer world. While there is an urgent need to mitigate the climate crisis and the impacts that accompany it, we also need to be thinking about how we plan for and recover from these climate fueled disasters. Samantha Montano is what you call a disasterologist. She has a doctorate in emergency planning and is currently a professor at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Dr. Montano is heavily invested in researching and working on achieving equitable policy around how we plan, prepare, and recover from disaster. For this episode, we sat down with her for a conversation around the climate crises, the lessons that can be learned from the coronavirus pandemic response, and how our systems are woefully underprepared for the impacts of climate change. Samantha, thank you so much for making the time uh, to talk to me today. Um, how how are you? How have you been through this quarantine and, and currently? I am hanging in there. It has been <laughs> quite the experience. But how about you? Likewise, I think you're in Massachusetts as well, right? Um, I teach in Massachusetts. I'm actually in Maine for the summer, though. Got it, got it. Um, so, but I think it's similar. Things are are looking a little bit better in the region, yeah. Now, so that's that's been a relief. But still working from home, so it's been it's been a long time. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, what about in the fall? Are you planning to be teaching or teaching remotely? What it, What is your your plan look like? Yeah, last I have heard, we will be teaching on campus um, for at least oh, wow. some of my classes. So, um, <laughs> yep, I will be back down in Massachusetts come September. Got it. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of the plans coming out of the universities and some are super comprehensive with like massive testing and massive precautions. So so hopefully that will be able to go well. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, my God. Um, but this is very topical for you and what you do. So hopefully we can get to talk a little bit about the, the craziness that has been the past few months with, with the pandemic and, and how that informs some of your thinking and your work. Definitely. Um, so, so first off, do you want to maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of your background and how you came to, to do the work that you're currently doing? Sure. So I got my start in disaster work in New Orleans following Katrina and Mm -hmm. the levee failure in 2005. Um, So I grew up in Maine and uh, so I was quite far removed from Katrina, but my high school did a volunteer trip down to the city to help, you know, gut houses, rebuild houses. And so I went along 
And I got to New Orleans and I was just completely horrified by the extent of the devastation and how much need there was in this city. And so I decided to move to New Orleans uh, to help with the recovery more long term. So I lived in the city mm-hmm. for about four years and worked with all kinds of different recovery nonprofits doing all kinds of things throughout the city. Um, and then while I was there, uh, the BP oil disaster happened down along the coast. And I had been working with a few different environmental nonprofits in New Orleans. And we kind of extended our work down to the Louisiana coast uh, to communities like Grand Isle, who were starting to experience the initial impacts from the oil disaster. And I kind of just ended up going from one community to another that was experiencing some kind of disaster or another. I spent some time in Joplin, Missouri after their tornado. And as I went from place to place, I started to notice that even though the types of disasters that had happened were really different and the communities themselves were really different, the uh, problems that were arising, particularly in recovery, were remarkably similar to one another. So it was, you know, (laughs) every community had problems with getting enough resources to help people through recovery. Every community was struggling with communication and coordination among the different nonprofits that had come into town to help with the recovery. And um, and so I started kind of putting together these different pieces of what I was learning at these different disasters and trying to look at the bigger picture of kind of what was going on around the country when it came to disasters. And through a series of events, I ended up going to graduate school where I got my doctorate in emergency management and started to learn all about disaster research and to learn about our emergency management system and kind of sort through all of the, uh, challenges that communities face before, during, and after disasters. Wow. We we actually had in an earlier season of the podcast, Professor Daniel Aldrich, who also incidentally got his start into disaster recovery and disaster kind of research um, with Katrina. He was living there at the time. Um, so that's that's really interesting to hear. And it's quite the start uh, to a career with, with one of the most horrifying kind of disasters in recent American history. Um, I wonder how how do you think that initial experience for you on the shock that it was seeing the aftermath of such devastation, how has that informed you as you've gone on um, in your career in, in disasters more, more broadly speaking? Yeah, I think it's informed everything. I mean, like you said, Katrina actually wasn't a disaster. It was a catastrophe. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, categorically bigger and more complex than kind of what we think of as a like, quote unquote, normal traditional disaster, like a tornado or something. And so everything that goes wrong during and after a disaster was just amplified. And so it, mm-hmm. you know, you you couldn't be in New Orleans without seeing the ways in which race and class and gender and a long history of politics and corruption and all of these different um, factors were swirling around with one another to create the lived reality on the ground. And so I think that having <laughs> having a start with such a complex and extreme version of disasters kind of just laid the groundwork for everything else. Definitely. I can only imagine. And and as you say, it painted a picture of a massive scope of what disaster means, uh, disaster recovery means, especially because, I mean, I think 10, 15 years after Katrina, there was still recovery happening, right? So yeah. it's what what does that mean to communities to kind of rebuild, not just in the literal sense of rebuilding, but actually rebuilding community and, and being able to go back to place um, and build some of those social bonds yeah, um, that absolutely. were present. 
Um, you also host a website that's fascinating and everyone should um, check it out. We'll definitely link it here. Disasterology. And you call yourself a disasterologist, um, which is a fascinating term to me. Um, why? What does that word mean to you? Why, why pick that term? Yeah, so disasterology is a term that has been referenced actually going back many decades among disaster researchers and some kind of obscure literature. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't come up with it myself, but um, I helped to resurface it. Essentially, it, it's just somebody who studies disasters. Um, you know, so I my degree is in emergency management and I study emergency management, but uh, there are people in all other disciplines, sociology, history, economics, any discipline you can think of that are studying disasters and, and doing disaster work and all of our work informs one another. And so there is kind of this broader umbrella of disaster researchers uh, who are doing this work. And so disasterology just kind of helps kind of capture that collective effort um, and also is helpful in communicating what I do to the public. I do a lot of science communication and public engagement outreach work. And when I say I'm an emergency management scholar, not a lot of people <laughs> know what that means, um, but disasterologist is, is a bit more clear. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder, I this is something that comes up for me and the work that we do often is kind of the terminology and what different terms mean. So, for instance, when we speak about the climate crises versus the climate emergency versus a specific disaster or natural catastrophe, um, how, how are all those terms different but related um, and specifically in the work that you do when, when it comes to emergency management, like in the moment when an emergency happens versus a longer term scope and view of either ongoing disasters or impending kind of crises? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Uh, it is very complicated. <laughs> um, so part of, uh, so yeah, so one important thing to know is that uh, particularly among like people doing climate work and then people doing disaster work, we are very often talking about similar things and just using different terms. So the example I tend to use is climate adaptation and hazard mitigation. So in emergency management, we refer to hazard mitigation as anything you're doing to uh, like sus sustained efforts to prevent and minimize risk in a community. So building a levy, doing home buyouts and putting in green space, those efforts, uh, you know, building codes for earthquakes, all of those efforts that we do and have done for a really long time to try and minimize the risk of disaster falls under this hazard mitigation category. There is significant overlap with what folks are talking about in the climate adaptation space. They're not, you know, completely the same, um, but there is a lot of overlap, right? When folks, uh, when climate folks talk about managed retreat, I mean, we're talking about buyout programs, uh, which we've already been doing for a long time. And so we're just kind of using different words, uh, which is complicates matters and I think is really confusing. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's one example. In emergency management, maybe it'll help for me to clarify exactly what emergency management is. So um, traditionally, folks probably think about FEMA or um, think about, you know, the actual response to disasters as being kind of what emergency managers do. In reality, FEMA is a very small part of emergency management and actually managing the response to a disaster is a very small portion of what emergency managers do. So we encompass everything from the response all the way through the recovery for however many years and decades that takes, um, but then also everything that comes before disasters. So everything we're doing to prepare for the response and recovery and then also hazard mitigation, the things that we're doing to um, try to prevent disasters from happening in the first place. So it's actually this pretty wide and far-reaching um, discipline and profession. 
Absolutely. Um, and we've actually had another certified emergency manager in just the last season of the podcast, Dr. Atia Martin. I don't know if, you, if you're familiar, but she's done phenomenal work um, here in Boston in, yeah. in a lot throughout her career. Yeah, that's great. Um, so maybe if we can talk about how that work of disaster planning and through disaster and then recovery afterwards, how do you have you been thinking about this? through the coronavirus pandemic, right? We are still living through it. Um, it's been many, many months, right, since the start of this, early in January, and it's now become a disaster that has kind of spanned every single country in the world, impacted everyone's lives in one way or another, and also shown a lot of these horrifying disparities that often are exacerbated during times of disaster, right? whether that be racial and socioeconomic um, and others. So how have you thought through this moment and how organizations and governments have responded um, to the pandemic? Yeah, um, it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot to wrap your head around. Um, so I've approached yeah. thinking about it kind of from an emergency management framework. Uh, one thing to point out that is quite different about the pandemic as compared to the types of disasters most people in the U.S. are used to experiencing is that the response itself, the actual, you know, life-saving measures that are being taken to address the pandemic are occurring over the span of many, many months. Like we're still in, mm -hmm. hopefully we've reached the middle, who knows, of the response. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we're used to those responses lasting a few days, a few weeks at most. And so uh, really trying to wrap our heads around the, um, the, the actual length of the response and kind of what that means and how that changes, how we usually respond to different disasters. Uh, the other major thing from an emergency management standpoint is thinking through kind of the capacity of the emergency management system to be involved in this response. Um, so uh, this is the first time in U.S. history that every single emergency management agency in the country has been activated simultaneously for the same event. And the way that our system is structured is that we're really reliant on help coming in from neighboring states, other parts of the country, when a disaster happens. Um, you know, when there's a hurricane in Florida, the rest of Southeast US, you know, goes and goes into Florida to help them. And that hasn't necessarily been able to really happen with the pandemic because every community is juggling their own needs. Uh, and so it has really kind of caused this strain within the emergency management system. Absolutely. And and it's perhaps because it's been such a widespread, diffuse type of disaster, right? That's kind of affecting everyone. Right. In what ways do you think that experience and the way in which the systems have been strained can inform the way that we respond to disasters into the future? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. I'm actually co-leading a really great team of disaster researchers from across the country. And we're kind of asking exactly this question. Um, we're, you know, specifically studying the capacity of the emergency management system and how it's responded to the pandemic. And, uh, and then kind of looking at those factors and what that means for the future, uh, particularly in this context of the climate crisis and increasing disasters across the country. Um, you know, as we go into the future and this likelihood of having multiple disasters happening simultaneously across the country increases, we want to figure out what exactly needs to change within the emergency management system so that it's better able to meet those needs. Absolutely. That, that's fascinating work. And I, I very much look forward to kind of seeing the completion of that, because I think this has been a huge test, right, on, on our ability to cope with massive strains and disasters that we know are, are just going to 
become more frequent and, and worse into the future. Um, and that brings me to something else that I wanted to touch on with you, which was um, issues of race and justice and how we've seen that through this crisis right now. Have you seen your field of work and study increasingly recognize those inequities within systems and societies as something that is also related to emergency management and kind of needs to be incorporated within the frameworks that we think about when we think about emergency response? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it has been an increasing focus. Um, so within disaster research, uh, you know, analyzing the role of race and class and other demographic factors has, um, you know, been, been a focus for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely increasing though now. Um, in practice though, <laughs> things are a, a bit different. Um, traditionally, emergency management agencies have been um, mostly older white males uh, with a military and first response background. And I think having that demographic so dominant within the profession has really, um, you know, helped to kind of obscure some of the um, injustices that occur before, during, and after disasters. As the pandemic has unfolded, as you said, you know, we've seen those come to the forefront again and who is most directly impacted in terms of, you know, not being able to take time off work, who is able to access government aid, who is able to um, get healthcare coverage and access. And, uh, I, I think because, again, of how it's affected every single community across the country simultaneously, that hopefully there is more of a recognition among a broader subset of the profession of, you know, the importance of understanding how race and class are um, affecting the work that they're doing. Um, there's definitely what I, you know, what I can say is that there definitely has been more conversations in the past few months about um, about the role of race and class in disasters, and uh, and hopefully that begins to manifest more in uh, policy changes and in practice. Absolutely, and inclusion as well. I think what you say about the makeup of the, the people who are doing this work is so important, right? Just like across so many other fields of work that, that we see not be as inclusive as the people and communities that they represent. Um, and that shift needing to happen internally to be able to reflect kind of the needs of, of the communities that we serve, I think is a huge um, component of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also wanted to ask you about mental health, and I know you have a background in psychology, I believe it was your undergrad degree, um, which is really fascinating to me that you have that background. And, and I'm just wondering, how do you think that background in psychology has informed the way that you think and approach your, your work now, specifically as we think about personal and community mental health and mental health impacts through times of disaster and an increasing anxiety around disasters current and that are to come. Yeah, it's so mental health is so important within the broader disaster work that we do. Um, you know, when uh, I started in New Orleans, my kind of first internship that I had related to disasters was working at the VA in New Orleans and specifically working with veterans who had PTSD and had been struggling because of and since Katrina. And so I kind of right from the beginning of doing disaster work had a, you know, really kind of first, uh, firsthand experience with how that trauma of disaster can manifest. Um, but also, uh, we tend to think about that trauma coming from the actual experience of going through the disaster itself. Um, research shows that uh, a significant 
uh, impacts, significant mental health impacts actually come about during the recovery from disasters. So as, um, you know, people are having to figure out how to rebuild their entire lives as they've lost their jobs, as they've lost their homes, as they are, uh, you know, removed from their communities and their social networks, uh, separated from family, we see the kind of stress and the strain of going through recovery leading to um, increases in stress. We tend to see an increase in suicides post-disaster. Um, and unfortunately, that happens at the same time that communities very often find their mental health systems have been impacted by the disaster. Uh, so again, going back to New Orleans being this really extreme example of this, in the years following Katrina, there was, um, I mean, essentially, <laughs> you know, the, the mental health care system in New Orleans essentially collapsed. Um, and people were having to travel outside of the city to get inpatient care. Um, you know, folks who were, you know, experiencing some of the worst mental health impacts didn't have insurance to be able to go see a therapist and, and get help that they needed. Um, and so you just saw this, you know, ballooning mental health crisis throughout the city of New Orleans as the recovery just dragged on and on. Uh, we've seen a similar situation happen in Puerto Rico since Hurricane Maria. Um, and, uh, the pandemic too has obviously, uh, you know, many of those signifiers of what we would expect to see kind of in, in the aftermath of a disaster in terms of, you know, people losing their jobs, not having economic stability, not having access to mental health care in some cases. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a super important kind of component of disaster work. Um, that we need to get better at addressing. Absolutely. And it's it's kind of jarring to think about what that might look like for, for a situation like what we're living through right now, right? The amount of life lost and the massive economic toll that it, this has taken and just foreseeing what it will take to, to recover and kind of the, the human cost and the human impacts that it will come with to recover from this year, really. Right. Um, I wonder, so one of the things that is always interesting for me to think through and talk to when I talk to people that do disaster recovery and relief is this dichotomy between those of us who are doing climate work and are trying to prevent things from getting so dire and horrific that we have to live through these disasters and squaring that away with the fact that at this point there is certain level of disasters that are inevitable and we have seen that we've seen that so much more frequently over the past few years with increased hurricanes and flooding and I mean even Boston 2 years ago I don't know if you remember the massive winter flooding and the storms that happened um so I wonder how you think through this concept of having to still work really, really hard on mitigating the causes of disaster, while at the same time understanding that there is a certain level of, of preparedness that we're going to have to do to reduce the suffering and the risk when those disasters do happen? Yeah, it's a hard one. Um, look, we've got to address climate change itself. Like we need all hands on deck to do that. Uh, to your point of, you know, thinking in the long term, that is something that is going to help prevent future disasters from happening. But at the same time, you know, there are already communities across the country and around the world that as we speak are experiencing the consequences of climate change. And, you know, we need to address their needs now as well. And I think that is where emergency management has a real responsibility here. We are kind of the frontline system 
uh, that exists to address these impacts that communities are already experiencing. And um, our emergency management system is far from perfect. There's a lot, uh, you know, it's a strained system. It, it, the approach that it takes is not always effective. It is not always a just approach. Um, And so in the same way that we need to be thinking ahead to minimizing those future disasters, we also need to be thinking about the changes that we need to make to the emergency management system and to our approach to disasters so that we are helping communities where we aren't preventing those disasters from happening. Um, And I think that this is really challenging um, because, uh, you know, I know there's been kind of some back and forth about this throughout the entire pandemic of feeling like, do we need to pause working on climate change to focus on the pandemic? Or no, like we can't stop talking about climate change every time there's a disaster, right? And it's one of those things where it's not an either or, you have to do both. And there are people who are better suited to do some of that work than others of that work, right? So it's a better use of my time to focus on changes to the emergency management system and to kind of help draw out those connections between disasters that are occurring now and climate change, rather than having me go spend a lot of time dealing with carbon emissions or whatever, right? Leave that to other people. So um, I, I think it's more kind of just about recognizing the different uh, different areas that need to be involved in these conversations and then making sure that, um, you know, everyone has a seat at the table and that we're, you know, making sure that our work is connecting um, so that, you know, folks aren't getting left behind. Absolutely. And it's super interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that we also talk a lot about in this podcast too, is kind of how detrimental it is to think about these issues as kind of like a hierarchy of priorities. And so when something comes up, it's it's everything else needs to be on pause or kind of take a backseat while we focus on the current issues. When in reality, if we're talking about systemic change, none of those things are irrelevant or none of those priorities can in fact take a backseat because we need to take a holistic approach and understand kind of our own lanes within these these massive changes that need to occur. Right. Um, and in one other thing that, that you mentioned is the changes that need to occur to the emergency management responses as we see them now. And in the referring to that specifically, I wanted to talk to you about this idea around voluntaris- volunteerism um, and charity and the ways in which we often fall back on volunteers or charitable giving in times of disaster. And while I mean, I think it's it's a brilliant and amazing thing to see people come together and show up for their community members in times of disaster. I've read you speak about the issues that this causes for kind of the, the systems at large and the responsibility that lies within actual funding and proper management of these systems. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you think through where the responsibility lies and why it can be an issue that a lot of these responsibilities fall on civilians that want to come together and help when a disaster strikes. Yeah. So the way that our emergency management system is structured is that it takes a limited government intervention approach. So what that means is that government provides some help in the aftermath of really bad disasters, right? Um, You get some money from FEMA if your house is destroyed. Um, The average is kind of, you know, for a like Joplin size event, Hurricane Sandy, you're looking at uh, an average of like $5,000, $6,000 per family. Um, Mm. So it's really not that much money uh, going to individuals specifically. And uh, so what that means is that people are on their own. So some people may have flood insurance, which is great. Maybe they'll get, you know, the money that they need to be able to rebuild. Uh, but maybe they don't have flood insurance, as many people across the country don't, um, or maybe the money that is paid out isn't enough to actually rebuild. Most people do not have, you know, 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting in a bank account waiting to be used to rebuild a house. So um, it it very often leaves individuals in this position of not having enough of their own resources to recover, not getting enough from government to recover, and then having nowhere else to turn but to nonprofits. And um, because this model that we're using is this limited intervention approach, it's actually the way the system is designed. Like the expectation is that the nonprofit sector will fill the gap between what individuals can afford on their own and what government is providing. And you know, as we have had disaster after disaster across the country, we're seeing that the nonprofit sector and specifically the disaster organizations are struggling to actually meet the needs of people and communities across the country. Um, my dissertation research was on um, flooding in Texas in 2016. And I interviewed a lot of volunteers and a lot of the uh, executive directors and volunteer coordinators for disaster nonprofit or national disaster nonprofits. And I heard a lot about volunteer fatigue and, uh, you know, how organizations were having to try and make decisions about which communities they were going to go and help with and how Sometimes there would be a disaster that happened somewhere in the country and they just didn't feel like they had the donations or the volunteers or the organizational capacity to actually go out and participate in the response and recovery from that disaster. And that is really concerning if you're taking this kind of national bird's eye view of the U.S. emergency management system you know, we're not just talking about FEMA and local emergency management agencies. We're also talking about the nonprofit sector and our disaster nonprofits right. specifically. And if they're saying we don't have the resources to help everyone, that is a huge, huge sign that we have a capacity problem and that something needs to change somewhere. Um, so this is something that I've been learning about and talking about since 2016. But in the past couple of months, this has just ballooned into an even bigger challenge as we think about the pandemic. I mean, we have seen millions of people lose their jobs, have cuts to their income. So people's personal ability to cover not only their daily expenses, but any other (laughs) disaster that comes up Um, is incredibly limited right now. We've seen that Congress has not done much to help at an individual level, Um, again, in terms of responding to the needs of the pandemic itself. Um, But again, we would see that, you know, amplified again in any other disaster that happens during this time. And uh, we've seen that uh, our disaster nonprofits, some of them are helping out with the pandemic, but because of the need to socially distance, volunteering is kind of difficult right now. Um, so they're struggling. Uh, one of the kind of biggest red flags right now is that um, the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, they're a coalition of our national disaster nonprofits, about 60 different organizations. Uh, the president of that organization said that they believe they will have about 50% less volunteers this year uh, wow. because of the pandemic. Um, so, so another uh Something else about our our disaster volunteers is that uh, the folks who tend to work with the Red Cross, Salvation Army, um, they tend to be people who have extra time to go to communities and help. And that means a lot of folks who are retired. So a lot of the volunteers of these organizations are actually in that high risk category for COVID. Um, And so you know, the the capacity of this system is taken another huge hit in that way and potentially kind of losing that expertise that exists within those organizations. So um, there there's kind of, you know, a perfect storm of, uh, of factors uh, coming together right now to suggest that this capacity is, is, um, you know, really stretched thin. 
Absolutely. And I think another thing that you've written about and I've kind of read across is this idea of of disaster fatigue as well and how people, individuals and the public at large also gets fatigued with how much disaster seemed to be, right? Like you just watch the news and, and we went from the horrible wildfires in Australia um, to the pandemic to now hurricane season. And this seems to be almost like a cyclical issue in which people who don't work in the space or who don't have the necessary training also get overwhelmed and fatigued with just the level of devastation that is happening across the board. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about that in terms of how it affects public perception um, and how that in turn also can become a challenge for, for emergency management and the systems? Yeah, fatigue can manifest in a number of different ways. So, uh, you know, during hurricane season, when we have a really active season and we have kind of one hurricane after another, there's always concerns about, you know, whether or not people are kind of tuning out various hurricane warnings because, you know, they've already been through several weeks of it. Um, So there can be some, you know, real consequences in terms of whether or not people are paying attention and are able to take actions to protect themselves. Um, Another way that it manifests is in actual donations. So, you know, as I just talked about, we're really dependent on those nonprofits and those nonprofits are very dependent on financial donations uh, from individuals across the country. Um, And we, uh, you know, people are are limited in their ability to give when there are, you know, one disaster after another. So that can help compound the ability of those organizations to be involved uh, as there are more and more disasters. I'll also mention that there's a fatigue among disaster survivors as well. I mentioned um, being in Texas earlier and the flooding in Houston and surrounding areas in Southeast Texas. They have had, you know, one flood after another since uh, the Memorial Day flood in 2015. You know, there are people there who have had their houses flooded five, six times in the past five years. And, um, and certainly they are not only kind of stuck in this cycle, but are exhausted by, um, by the continued, uh, flooding there. So, uh, and and then of course you have the fatigue among emergency managers and, and other kind of responders to disasters as well. Um, I will tell you just from talking to emergency managers working across the country right now this pandemic has been exhausting. Um, everybody has been working nonstop. There's been no, you know, real break. And, uh, and to think that, you know, we're still just starting now the height of hurricane season, um, you know, there's already significant fatigue. Oh God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no, that's okay. Um, do you see any opportunities? Do you see any good news or or trends that you're starting to see within the within these communities in in how we can overcome some of these kind of massive challenges? Yes. Uh, so I, you know, I will say that in recent years, but especially in recent months, I think that there is much more of an interest among the public for, mm-hmm. uh, you know learning about and understanding disasters, I think people are really looking for kind of clear, no-nonsense, science-based explanations about what is happening. And I think, you know, this is a really scary time that we are all living through right now. And, you know, even before the pandemic started, there were these kind of nonstop disasters that were straining the system, affecting millions of people across the country. And I think that, for one of the first times many folks across the country started to really see what the climate crisis means and that it you know it's not just this future reality it's this current reality and i think that there is almost like a craving among the public for explanations about what is happening and my hope is that those explanations and that kind of analysis will lead to an interest in kind of interrogating what is causing disasters, 
who's most affected by disasters, and then ultimately what we need to do to prevent them. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier that we need significant policy changes at local levels, but also nationally uh, to make our emergency management system more effective. And that's not something that I don't think Congress is just going to go and do on their own. You know, we need people who are advocating for those policy changes. Um, And, you know, it's got to be something that the public understands and is pushing for. And I, I am hopeful that, Um, you know, as people are, you know, seeing these disasters over and over that there's almost this opposite reaction from this fatigue and that there's more of an interest in, uh, and kind of a a rallying around trying to, to make changes for the future. Absolutely. And I will say, I think that's why science communication is such an important, has such an important role to play right now um, in terms of making science and facts accessible to people who want to understand and, as you're saying, are getting more involved. And so the work you are doing in terms of that that communication of the science is so important. And, and I think I also see this trend um, of more and more people getting engaged in making those more accessible for a larger number of people um, who care about the issues that, that we're living through. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, so that's hopeful. See, we, I always try and incorporate some kind of hopefulness here because our listeners, I mean, we we tackle a lot of, of very jar- jarring like prospects and very um, horrific realities. So I think it's also important to provide a, a scope of what is happening and what people are actually doing to address those huge challenges that we have. Absolutely. Um, one thing I have to ask you, and I, I have to imagine this is something you get asked about a lot um, doing the disasterologist work that you do, um, but what are some of the things that you are personally most worried about and how have you prepared or incorporated certain things into the way that you live in order to personally prepare yourself um, for disaster? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, well, you know, I... I don't really necessarily know that there is one specific disaster scenario that really keeps me up at night. I think that um, my biggest concern always goes back to this capacity issue, and it's really having multiple major disasters occur at the same time. Um, So we are, (laughs) we're, we're, we're pretty far into my worst nightmare with this pandemic and hurricane season right now. Um, But yeah, I I mean, even, you know, going back to like the 2017 hurricane season where you have three in a row, plus the California wildfires, um, you know, any, any scenarios in which, uh, you know, you have multiple events and resources have to be divided across the country, I think it's into some really scary territory for me. Um, I, in terms of what I do to prepare myself, um, I I think probably the biggest thing is I'm, um, pretty cautious about where I live. Um, and I, Mm -hmm. you know, would never purchase a house that is next to the ocean. Um, you know, I try to make more, um, kind of like strategic decisions so that I'm not in a position of going through a disaster myself. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. No, that's that's absolutely great advice. I think I've come become like known as the person who's always looking at flood maps, especially in Boston. Yeah. Um, when you have these like projections of like 2050, 75, and 2100 of the massive amounts of of the area, Boston areas that are going to be flooded, um, in deciding where we should live. So that's <laughs> that's kind of interesting way to kind of have to think about things. Um, but in closing, I wanted to ask you kind of what what are some of the projects that you have looking forward to? I know that you're working on a book. I believe it's being published next year. And if you want to tell us about some of the projects that you are kind of most excited about right now. Yeah. Um, so research wise, I'm, I'm working on that COVID research project. Um, I also recently started a monthly disaster newsletter, um, which I'm pretty excited about. I just sent the first one out this week. <laughs> um, and thanks. <laughs> um, it's yeah, no, people seem really excited about it. I tried to 
um, have it be as informative as possible, but still try to keep it light and be aware of the fact that we're all like living through a pandemic and we don't necessarily right. want more disaster news on top of that. But um, so, yeah, so I've been working on that. Um, and then, yeah, you mentioned my book that uh, I have written. Um, it'll be coming out next summer. Uh, it's essentially kind of the story of how I became a disasterologist. Uh, I go through different stories of the communities that I have spent time in, and that kind of shaped my understanding of disasters and emergency management and climate change. So I talk a lot about being in New Orleans, talk about being in Louisiana during BP, uh, talk about Houston and their flooding. Uh, I talk about growing up on the coast of Maine and also uh, living in North Dakota during Standing Rock. Um, and, you know, I really kind of just go through what the emergency management system is, kind of those fundamentals of disaster research. And, uh, you know, the way it's written, it, it's very much for a general audience. And I'm hoping that it mm -hmm. connects, uh, especially, though, with folks that are in the climate movement and environmental movement more broadly. Um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I think it uh, could be really helpful to folks who have kind of had disasters on their periphery, but are looking for more specific insights about, you know, what exactly emergency management is and how that fits in with the climate movement and climate adaptation. Uh, that is so exciting. Um, I will be sure to keep my eyes out for that book because I think it's, as you said, it's so relevant, it's so important, and it's something that I think a lot more people need to be paying attention to. Absolutely. Um, Samantha, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating um, 48 minutes. Wow, I'm sorry I took so much of your time. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but thank you so much for making the time and for all of the work that you do. We'll be sure to link your newsletter and your website in the web in the episode description as well. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, have a great rest of your day and week. Yeah, you too. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olano and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 